Last week, Pastor Tyler started this series called Imagine. And he spoke about imagining a church that looks like the way scripture actually tells us to live like. And it was a powerful message. If you missed it, you can check it out on YouTube. But I wanna continue kind of that idea. I wanna build on that idea this week and talk about imagine us as individuals if we lived the life that the Lord actually created us to live. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of my message is one word. It's just one word long. So it's gonna be really easy to remember, extraordinary extraordinary. I want to read a scripture to you, and then we're going to pray, and then I'm just going to dive right in. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, is our main text this morning. It says this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith Hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I'm gonna pray, Abba Father, we just wanna say thank you so much. Lord, I thank you that we get to come to church. What an honor it is, Lord, to gather together as a community. Lord, to worship you, to experience your presence. Lord, we could feel it this morning, Jesus. We thank you for your peace, that it's for us. We thank you for your joy, that it's for us. We thank you for your love, that it's for us. So would you open up our eyes to see your truth, goodness, and beauty in the scriptures? Would you open up our ears to hear your voice? And would you open up our lives, Jesus? Transform us. Make us more like you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Awesome. Well, hey, three years ago, I read this biography on Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple. And it begins by referencing an Apple commercial that aired in 1997, so over 20 years ago. This is what it says. Here's to the crazy ones. The ones who see things differently and have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Ooh. That statement got me, especially that last one. In fact, I even have it written in my Bible. That's how much it like stood out to me. The ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. And I think that's a, a pretty good way to even think about Steve Jobs. In fact, Steve Jobs, he once told his employees, the work we are doing here at Apple is going to send a giant ripple through the universe. A giant ripple through the universe. And I want you to think with me for a moment. Think about the iPhone. Think about how addicted we all are to it. Think about, oh gosh, that's right, okay? I, I, I get that like alert that comes up, like you spent X amount of you know, hours on your iPhone today, like, oh Jesus, forgive me, okay? But think about the iPhone, right? Th think about the App Store, how many businesses actually operate through it and because of it, the, the MacBook, how mobile and powerful and how, how common it is, the fact that we stream music on a daily basis, the fact that we listen to our books now rather than even read them in an audible format. You see, Jobs revolutionized society and you could argue that it was to its betterment or detriment, but he accomplished what he set out to do. He sent this giant ripple through the universe. And I think it's because of this. I think he dared to live an extraordinary life. You see, the reality is that there is an innate desire inside all of us for the extraordinary. 
We long to live an extraordinary life and leave an extraordinary legacy, to build something that matters, to create something that lasts, to know that our lives actually had meaning and value and significance. And it's more than just a desire, I think. It's a calling and a mandate that we have from God. We are created to, we are called to live extraordinary lives. The, the greatest sermon ever preached is called the Sermon on the Mount, and it was actually taught by Jesus himself. And inside this beautiful sermon, Jesus makes a rather odd declaration. This is what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, everybody say exceeds. Oh, you guys are killing it. Come on. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, many of us confusedly and understandably just skim over that verse and skip over it real quickly because the scribes and the Pharisees were the epitome of religious devotion. They were the epitome of religious piety. How could anyone be more righteous than they were? It's easy to ask. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think he provides a very helpful commentary on the verse. He focuses on what the text says in the Greek, which is the original language, and he zooms in on this Greek word perison which is translated here, exceeds. And this is what he says. How then do the disciples differ from the rest of the world? What does it really mean to be a Christian? Oh my gosh, that's a, that's a profound question there, okay? This is how he answers it. Here we meet the word which controls the whole Sermon on the Mount and sums up everything we have heard so far. What makes the Christian different from other people is the peculiar, the parison, the extraordinary. This is the quality whereby the better righteousness exceeds the, Pharisee, or the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is the more, the beyond that. And then Bonhoeffer says this, it's so epic. He says, for Jesus, the hallmark of the Christian is the extraordinary. You see, we are called to the extraordinary, to have in our lives extraordinary grace, extraordinary patience, extraordinary kindness, extraordinary integrity, extraordinary discipline and generosity to actually stand out from the rest of society because of the extraordinary in our lives. In fact, it's really interesting to me, this word holy is found all throughout scripture, right? You can almost flip, up, flip your Bible open to any page, you'll find the word holy. And the very definition of the word holy is what? To be set apart to be different in a good way. One could almost say this, to be extraordinary. To be really transparent, I used to be really insecure about my life story. I did. Whenever people would ask me uh, to tell my story or, you know, as Christianese go, uh, your, your testimony, I would always preface it by saying, you know, it's, it's pretty unorthodox. And every time I said that, what I meant by it was this, that it's had more twists and turns and ups and downs than I'd ever care to admit. You see, if, 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 if I had it my way, this is what I thought life was going to look like, man. I was going to attend Bible college uh, for four years. I was going to meet a girl. I was going to get married right after graduation, which also, by the way, is what everyone thinks at Bible college. In fact, everyone called our Bible college bridal college. Like, that's how thirsty everyone was to get married. It was pretty rough, okay? We'd be at chapel, and everyone would worship God with their left hands just high up in the air. Like, forget about the right hand. It was all about the left hand, and they'd do a little dance with their ring fingers just to show everyone that they were single and ready to mingle, okay? I I, I called them the left-handed worshipers, man. And our Bible college was flooded with them, okay? And you go to any church, you're going to find left-handed worshipers. Look for them, all right? Nothing wrong with it, okay? But just look for them, okay? <laughs> I'm so glad you guys laughed. I have been preparing that joke for so long. Yes! Woo! I was seriously nervous that nobody would laugh. That would have been a terrible moment, okay? But back to, back to my main point, man. I had a plan for my life. 
I was gonna go to Bible college. I was gonna get married. I was gonna be a youth pastor for five years and I was gonna be an associate for five years and then I was gonna be the big next mega church pastor. That was my plan. And I'll be real, life has not looked like that at all. Like at all. Like I went to five different colleges before I graduated with my undergrad and started my graduate degree. From the age of 20 to 28, I moved 11 times. I lived in three different states. And just to get really personal all of a sudden, I've had my heart broken and have hurt more than I ever thought humanly possible. My life has been anything but orthodox, anything but cookie cutter, anything but what I had planned. And I'll be real, I used to think that that actually disqualified me from having an extraordinary life. But I've learned that it's the opposite. This is what I've learned, that everything in our lives, everything, if surrendered to Jesus Christ, feeds the extraordinary. Every twist and turn, every up and down, every disappointment and heartbreak, every moment of pain and suffering, every mistake and failure, every obstacle encountered and trial endured, everything, everything, if surrendered to Jesus Christ, feeds the extraordinary in our lives. It makes our life story even more extraordinary. Come on. It gives us this story that's worth telling the world. Soren Kierkegaard was a, a Danish philosopher in the late 1800s, and it's interesting, he's actually known as the father of existentialism, which if you have no idea what that means, all good, okay? But, but he loved Jesus with all of his heart, and it was so cool. You read his journal entries, that guy was always talking about Jesus, and his, his most famous book is called Fear and Trembling. In fact, he considered it his life's work, and it's about how God tested Abraham in the Bible, and in it, he explores what made Abraham such a heroic and extraordinary figure. And he says that he was tested nearly his entire life, didn't see God's promise come to fruition until the ripe age of 100 years old. And then as soon as he sees that promise fulfilled, guess what? He's tested again. His journey must have been so painful at times, so lonely at times, so agonizingly long at times. But this is what Kierkegaard concludes. He says, Abraham became extraordinary, not by being relieved of the distress and the agony, but because of those things. You see, it was the fear, it was the pain, it was the anguish, it was the anxiety, it was the distress that Abraham actually encountered and overcame in God's strength that made him extraordinary and that made him what he is today, the father of our faith. Everything, if surrendered to Jesus, feeds the extraordinary in our lives. And I'll be real, this truth should actually liberate us. Like, it should actually set us free. It should set our weary souls at ease. It should take the pressure off of our shoulders. Because if you live for perfection, which I know sounds so ridiculous, and yet you look anywhere in the Bay Area, and so many people are living for perfection. If you live for perfection, you are going to burn yourself out by living in a facade. You're going to lose your authentic self. Man, if you live for success, however you define success, whether that would be fame and influence or monetary funds, if you live for success, your emotional state is going to be as consistent as the stock market. You're going to be all over the place. Oh, come on. But if you live for the extraordinary in Jesus Christ, then you will walk in authority. You will walk in effectiveness. You will walk in freedom. You will walk in peace. Why? Because regardless of what happens, in your life, regardless of what bullets are shot your way, of what obstacles are thrown onto your path, you're gonna be able to have this mindset and this confidence that says, I'm not gonna let this get me down. This is just gonna make my life story even more extraordinary. In fact, that's what Joseph declared, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. What did he say? He said, you meant evil against me. You meant to defeat me. You meant to destroy me. Oh, but guess what? God used it to bring about the extraordinary in my life. Can I hear an amen? Come on. Here, we're going to revisit the text that we opened up with. 
The, the great apostle Paul wrote this letter known as 1 Corinthians. It was a, originally a letter that he wrote to a church that he started in a very influential city called Corinth, written somewhere between scholars and theologians, say, 53 and 55 AD. And we're going to kind of reread it real quickly. I know we already opened up with it. But verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says this, that when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, this is interesting. Because if you read in your Bibles and you read the, the first four books in the New Testament called the Gospels, you, you, you'll remember that Jesus actually told us to be like little children. Like he said that on multiple occasions. Well, what's interesting is that when Jesus said this, he was speaking of the heart. He was speaking of our hearts. He's saying, hey, before God, we need childlike innocence and we need childlike dependence. But Paul here in 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about the mind. He's essentially saying, dude, don't be uninformed don't, 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 don't be immature in your thinking. Stop being distracted by non-essentials, anything that takes us away from Jesus Christ. And stop thinking that Christianity is about just avoiding hell and getting into heaven. He's like, it's, it's about so much more. In fact, I really think that every single person in here, we need to understand this, that for followers of Jesus, eternal life begins now. Come on, eternal life begins now. We don't have to wait to heaven to experience God's joy and peace and freedom and intimacy with God. We can actually begin to experience those things right now. And what Paul is essentially saying is he's saying, wake up, start living this extraordinary life in Jesus. Stop just having this passive mindset that says, oh, well, heaven's coming. It doesn't really matter what happens here on earth. No, we are called to the extraordinary. And then verse 12, he says this, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. In other words, there will be twists and turns. There will be ups and downs. I'm going to shoot you straight. There will be difficult times as we follow God, as we follow Jesus. And, and, and I, I, I'm not going to lie. Not everything's going to make sense. Not everything's going to make sense in the moment. Oh, but we have to trust Jesus. We have to trust his intentions. We have to trust his heart. We have to trust that he's going to use everything that we experience, that we encounter in our lives, to actually feed the extraordinary. And then finally, verse 13 Come on, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. It's even my Instagram bio, if that's not proof that it's my favorite verse. I don't know what it is, okay? Thanks for the couple of laughs on that one. Not as much as the left-handed worshiper joke, but okay, all right, I'll take it. So now faith, hope, and love abide. And the Greek word for abide here is to remain forever, to last forever. These three things abide, but the greatest of these is love. You see, here we are given the key to living an extraordinary life. You don't have to invent the iPhone like Steve Jobs. You don't have to stand up against the Nazi regime like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You don't need a million dollars in your bank account. You don't need a million followers on Instagram. You don't have to be a public figure. You know what you need? You need three things that are all found in Jesus Christ and him alone. You need faith, you need hope, and you need love. That's the key to an extraordinary life. And as simple as it sounds, we give it up to Jesus for that. Let's go. Okay, thank you, thank you. But these are my three main points. As simple as it is, three points today. Let's begin with the first, extraordinary faith. Man, if we're going to live an extraordinary life, we're going to need extraordinary faith. It's been raining a lot this last couple of weeks. Anyone like the rain? Like anyone enjoying it? Yeah, all right, let's go. You know, I live on the top floor of an apartment complex. So you guys remember like rain sticks, you know? I literally, it feels like I live inside of a rain stick. And I, I'm not even like complaining about it. In fact, I'll crack the window open and I'll pour myself some like coffee or some tea or something. I'll just play piano or read a book for hours. It sounds super moody because it is, but I've been loving it, okay? It's been pretty awesome. But it, have you ever noticed that a lot, of, a lot of people say they love the rain? A lot, a lot of people say they love the rain until they actually have to walk around in it. Like, have you ever noticed that? 
Like what we really mean when we say we love the rain is we like looking at it, especially as Californians. We like watching it. We like having an excuse to be lazy and to watch Netflix or Hulu all day long. We don't want to walk around in it. We don't want to have to get our hair ruined or our shoes wet. Come on, nobody's got time for that. We don't want that. We just like looking at the rain. <laughs> Thank you. She knows I like my shoes. I'll never get these babies wet. <laughs> what did I just say? But I think the same is true in our lives. I really do. I think most people are more comfortable watching someone else live an extraordinary life than actually living one themselves. You see, we all have this innate desire to live an extraordinary life, and yet when we are given the opportunity, most of the time, it hurts too badly. It costs too much. It feels too uncomfortable and too inconvenient, and so we settle for watching somebody else live the life that we've always wanted and the life that we were created to live in Jesus. And this is where faith comes in. It's, it's so challenging to me that when you open up the scriptures, Jesus is said to have been amazed only twice. Only twice. The first incident occurs in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion asked Jesus to heal an employee of his that he really liked. And so Jesus responded by saying that he'd gladly come and heal the guy. But then the centurion said this. He said, no, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house. Just say the word. I have faith. Just say the word, and I know that my servant's going to be healed. And in verse 10, Scripture tells us that when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled. Like, it was, he was amazed. His jaw dropped. And then the second actually occurs in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus visited his hometown, and in verses 5 and 6, it says this, that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You see, it's so challenging to me that we can either make God marvel by having great faith or by having no faith. We can either make God marvel by having great faith or having no faith. And I don't know about you, but I want great faith. Like, I want God to look at me and be like, that's my boy. Like, that guy's got faith. Like, I'm so proud of him and I'm so honored by him. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And then in verse 6, it says this, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then very interestingly, the author of Hebrews goes on to list a ton of people in Scripture who actually embodied great faith, who had incredible faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of known as the hall of faith, right? I mean, it's just going through person after person after person in the Scriptures that had this incredible faith. And I think that that's so um, extraordinary, even in itself, because I think the author of Hebrews is communicating this. We cannot attain extraordinary faith by ourselves. Like, we can't. Like, we actually need to see other people walk in faith. In order to walk through fire, you got to see other people walk through fire. If you want to live with extraordinary faith in your life, you're going to need to surround yourself with people who have extraordinary faith. Why? Because the extraordinary in others draws out the extraordinary in us. The extraordinary in others draws out the extraordinary in us. I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer in like every single message I preach now, and I'm just getting out. I realize that. I recognize that. But I haven't actually told you why yet. I haven't told you why. So we're going to get a little real right now, okay? January through March of last year were like the darkest, most painful moments of my entire life. And I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty. I'm not going to even really touch on it too much, except for this. It was to the point where I was just, I would lay on my bed and just pray, Lord, just take me. Like I, just, I, I, can't, I can't handle this anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. 
And so one night I was laying in bed and I was just scrolling through Twitter and I saw a tweet from J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. Okay? A fan had asked her for recommendations on books to read during tough times. And this was her tweet. She literally said, when I'm stressed and I'm overwhelmed, I turn to biographies of people who have lived turbulent lives. I find it soothing and inspiring to read about people who have endured and overcome. And I saw the tweet and being at seminary, I had a little bit of background on him. I just bought my first Bonhoeffer book. And a little bit about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was on the fast track to becoming Germany's greatest theologian, like the most renowned theologian. And at the same time, he pastored a church. This guy was brilliant. He had a doctorate degree by age 25. And then the Nazis began to actually gain control in Germany. And when that happened, most pastors actually crumbled under Hitler's propaganda. Hitler promised them this life of ease and influence if, he, if they supported him. And Bonhoeffer was really one of the only voices in Germany at the time that would speak out against Hitler. So immediately and so consistently. And so he was eventually banned from actually teaching at a university and banned from even having his own church. And so how cool is this? He started an underground and illegal seminary, all right? And then to make his life even more complex, he actually was a part of an assassination plot against Hitler. That was eventually found out. He was taken prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, and he lived the last two years of his life there before being martyred for his death. And what's fascinating, too, is that Hitler himself signed Bonhoeffer's death sentence. That's how extraordinary his life was. And yet even this didn't detour him. Even this didn't diminish his faith. His final words were this. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Oh, and talk about faith. Talk about faith. You see, I realized that if Bonhoeffer could trust Jesus through all of that, then I could trust Jesus through my pain and suffering. And that's why he became so influential in my life. And I'll just be real. We all need people like that. We all need a Bonhoeffer. We all need somebody that we can look at and go, man, if they can get through that, if he can get through that, I can get through this. If she can get through that, I can get through this. Who is that person in your life? If you're going to live with extraordinary faith, you have to have that person. Why? Because the extraordinary in others draws out the extraordinary in us. And yet I want to say one more thing on the subject of faith. In the scriptures, there's a story in the book of Daniel about three extraordinary men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they refuse to bow down and worship this golden statue, this idol um, that's uh, replicated after King Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon. And as a result, they were bound and actually brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar basically said, hey, I'm going to give you one more chance. You bow down and you worship this golden statue when I tell you to, or otherwise I'm going to literally sentence you to death by fire. And this is their response. It's absolutely extraordinary. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But then in verse 8, he says something so peculiar, so odd, something that's just so interesting. He says this, but even if he doesn't. Woo! We don't get to that verse very often. <laughs> But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are willing to risk their lives because they trust God to save them. They declare, oh, you can do whatever you want to us, but we believe that God's going to take care of us. We have faith. And yet at the very same time, they say, but even if God chooses not to save us, even if for some reason unknown to us, even if it doesn't make sense, we want you to know something. We're still going to trust Jesus. Come on, we're still going to trust his intentions are good. We're still going to trust that our lives are safe and secure in his hands, that he knows what he is doing. Come on, here's the lesson here. 
And it's such a profound lesson. But here it is. Submission is the highest form of faith. I'm going to say that again. Submission is the highest form of faith. Let me clarify something, by the way, that I think can be really confusing when we open up the scriptures. There are plenty of scriptures like Mark chapter 11, verse 24. This is just one example, but it says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And I want to say this, that the, the, those scriptures are in the Bible to increase the intensity of our faith, to increase the immensity of our faith. But they're not in the Bible to do away with our need to submit to God. They're not. You see, the marriage of faith and submission in prayer is a rhythm all throughout Scripture. And let me give you just two examples. The first is Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy comes up to Jesus, and this is his prayer. He goes, if you will, if you are willing, you, you can make me clean. And Scripture tells us that Jesus was actually honored by his prayer, and he healed him. But this serves as a template for how we should actually pray when we pray to God. If you are willing, you can if you will, you can. Our God is able to, but even if he doesn't. You see, this is the prayer of extraordinary faith. One that is fully assured that God can, and yet one that is fully submitted to God's will. You see, the second example comes from Jesus Christ himself. And there was no higher or greater example for us. You see, Jesus, on the darkest night of his life, the night that he was betrayed, the night that he was taken away to be crucified, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, this is what he says. He said, my father, if it be possible, oh, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, the prayer of extraordinary faith has a few components in it. First of all, it recognizes God's power. It actually recognizes the fact that God can do anything, that there's nothing too hard for him. This is faith, of course. But then the other thing it does is it actually expresses our desire. It's okay to do that too. Like, God, if I had it my way, like, this is, this is what I would ask. It's like, I know you can, and this is what I ask. But then the final piece that's often so missing when it comes to prayer is this submission to God's will. To just say, and at the end of the day, Lord, I'm going to trust you no matter what. At the end of the day, I'm going to believe that you have good things for me no matter what. At the end of the day, I'm going to love you no matter what. You see, Jesus prayed this way. Come on, we should pray this way. I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer again, okay? So just forgive me. He's in this message a lot, okay? But this is what he says. It's a very interesting perspective. He writes, Jesus prays to his father that the cup may pass from him, and his father hears his prayer. For the cup of suffering will indeed pass from him, but only by his drinking it. Whoa. Whoa. You see, in other words, sometimes the only way out is through through the fire, through the pain, through the loneliness, through the anguish, through the despair, through the anxiety. Come on, but here's where faith comes in. Jesus will lead us through. Jesus will get us through. There's nothing that Jesus cannot lead us through if we trust him, if we don't give up, if only we have faith. You see, the first thing to live an extraordinary life is that we have to have extraordinary faith. And here's the second thing, extraordinary hope. We need extraordinary hope. There is a difference, believe it or not, between faith and hope. And here it is. Hope is the object of our faith. It's the object of our faith. And faith is the action of our hope. Faith is the action of our hope. In other words, hope is what we believe in, trust in, live in the reality of. It's kind of like the substance. And then faith is how that actually plays out in our daily lives. It's essentially our response. I was at Wells Fargo the other day and I noticed that the teller who was helping me had this note card displayed on her desk. And written on the note card was this phrase, the best is yet to come. 
And I was like, that's cool. And so I asked her about it, and she said, oh, that's my daily reminder. I call it my declaration. And I was like, man, that's, that's awesome. You see, we all need a declaration. We all need a daily reminder of who we are in Jesus Christ and of the future that he actually has planned for us. I'll be real. I've had different declarations at different chapters of my life story. Statements, you could say, that have become themes in my prayer life and in my journal entries and just even in my thought life. For a while, it was this. This was my declaration for a while. My past will not haunt my future. My past will not haunt my future. And I'll be real, some of you actually need to adopt that declaration even in your own life. You see, your past mistakes, your past failures, your past heartbreak, your past disappointments, it will not dictate your life. It will not define your future. And another declaration of mine just came straight from Scripture. It was Psalm 27, verse 13. I believe it's on the screens, but it says this, I have sure faith that I will experience the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. If we can get real, many Christians have hope for the future, but very few have hope for today. And i got to be real with you. Jesus came to bring us both. Like he came to get us excited about heaven, to get us excited about the future. But you know what he also did? He came to get us excited about right now. He came to actually bring us faith and hope and love right now to empower us to actually bring heaven to earth in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, everywhere our contexts are. He came to actually empower us to bring heaven to earth. I've said this before, but I'll say this again. Whatever sits in your head seeps into your heart. And that's why it is so important to have declarations of hope. Because if we can declare hope in our lives, guess what? We'll watch our hearts rise up in faith. A, a few weeks ago, Pastor Chad Veach from Zoe Church in L.A. was in town. And he spoke at our team night. Anybody, was anyone there? It was such an awesome night. We, had, we literally had 70 people jammed into our church offices. And we worshiped God. Chad brought an incredible message. It was just such a special time. And a lot of people don't actually know this, but Chad was actually my youth pastor in middle school. In fact, he's the guy that introduced me to Pastor Tyler, our senior pastor here at Mission Church. It's so funny. We were at a summer camp. And he's like, dude, you got to meet this guy named Tyler. He's super cool. And so. I met him. I started. I left Chad's youth group to go to Tyler's youth group. <laughs> no joke. That's how it went down. Okay, but but it was just it was so fun to see Chad again. So I went up to him after our team night. And I was like, bro, it's so good to see you. He gives me this big hug and he asks how my dad is and how my brother is and how my family's doing. And then we we catch up for a little bit. And then he's on his way out and he turns around and he looks at me and he just smiles and he points and he goes, Caleb, you're the Tim Tebow of Walnut Creek. And then he walked out the door. And you know what happened to me? I was like, man, I could change the world right now. I am the Tim Tebow of Walnut Creek. I mean, it's like, it changed the way I walked. It changed the way I thought about myself. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know what? It became somewhat of a theme, even in my prayers. I was like, Lord, it wasn't about winning the Heisman Trophy, by the way, just to clarify, in case you were wondering. It's about this. It's about stepping up my game. You know, when I, when I heard that, I go, man, Tim Tebow inspired so many people to love Jesus more. I was like, man, I want my life to be so extraordinary that it inspires people by the way that I love Jesus, by the way that I walk in purity, by the way that I walk in integrity and honor, by the way that I walk, by the way that I even take care of my body. I mean, literally everything. I want my life to be extraordinary. Why? Because the extraordinary in others draws out the extraordinary in us. During team night, Chad said something in his message that was so profound. He said, God will always meet you at your level of expectation expectation is the breeding ground for miracles, is what he said. Another way to think of it is this, that our level of extraordinary is determined by our level of expectancy. 
Our level of extraordinary is determined by our level of expectancy. Kierkegaard once said that everyone will become great in proportion to their expectancy. So if you expect what's doable, guess what? It's going to get done. If you expect what's difficult in your life, with a little bit of hard work, you'll probably accomplish it. Man, but if you expect what is impossible, then in his words, you will become the greatest of all. You will have lived an extraordinary life. Now, what's so interesting and inspiring to me, too, is that when you look at the Greek, the Greek word for hope is this word called elris. And you know what elris means? It means confident expectation. Hope is what drives us to the extraordinary. Man, if we're going to have an extraordinary life, we have to have extraordinary love. We have to have extraordinary hope. And then we have to have extraordinary love. And I'll invite the worship team, too, to come up behind me. But extraordinary love. About a year ago, I had this opportunity to sit down and have breakfast with a friend of mine and a mentor. He's actually a, a theologian. His name is A.J. Sabota. and teaches at multiple seminaries, has written multiple books. And I came with this like long list of questions, and most of which uh, kind of pertains to the world of academia. I had a bunch of theology questions I wanted to ask him. I wanted to pick his brain on a couple of different uh, doctorate programs I'm dreaming about for the future. And in the middle of our conversation, he, he stopped me and he said, Caleb, I just got to be real. Just don't do what I did. And it kind of, it made me like, you know, it jolted me. I was like, what? You know? He goes, don't do what I did. He goes, I was a, and I can't even actually say the word in church that he used, but he, he goes, I missed out for four years on learning from the people around me because I thought I knew everything. He goes, don't do that. He goes, in fact, I, I, I need you to remember this. And then he said something that, I'm not joking, I, I don't say this like uh, superficially, I don't say this lightly, like this changed my life, it's in my Bible, it's in my heart. He said this, he said, theology that doesn't benefit the church is just another idol. Whoa. Theology that doesn't benefit the church is just another idol. And the reality is that that's my context, but you could drop the word theology and you could replace it with any other word, and his statement would still be so profoundly true in whatever context yours is. Success that doesn't inspire love and glorify God is just another idol. Influence that doesn't inspire love and glorify God is just another idol. Monetary funds, knowledge of any sort, fill in the blank. If it doesn't inspire love and glorify God, it's just another idol. And this isn't a Caleb original. This isn't even a Sabota original. This is straight from the Apostle Paul in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. He says this, man, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gone and a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Man, it's so interesting to me, too, that when you look contextually, 1 Corinthians 13, it's, it's in between these two chapters that deal with spiritual gifts and spirituality and knowledge and prophecy and intellection. It's an altogether lofty conversation, and yet Paul just puts it on pause. He goes, whoa, 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 but we got to stop something. He has this moment with Corinth, like the moment that Sabota had with me, and he says, I need you to remember something. Don't forget that this is all about one thing, love. It's all about love. Love is the greatest. It's the greatest endeavor. It's the greatest pursuit. Have you ever wondered why love is the greatest, by the way? Like, what about strength? Like, wouldn't you think that strength would be the greatest? What, what about wisdom? Like, that makes sense, right? What about courage? Aristotle thought that courage was the greatest. Why does the Bible say love? That love is the greatest. Ever since I was uh, about eight years old, I dreamed about being a writer. And so I, I write every day and just for fun, and I'm uh, working on some stuff. So if this, I'm going to share something with you, okay? If it sucks, just keep it to yourself, okay? But I think it'll answer our question. 
Love is the most central component of the Christian faith. This is not to demean the crucial roles of theology, obedience, and sacrifice amongst many others in devotion to Christ. It is to stress the centrality of love. All other virtues find their genesis in love. Why have courage without a love for the one in whom you wish to protect? Why exercise discipline without a love for the thing in which you long to obtain? Why venture down the arduous path of obedience without a love for that which you want to honor? Love is fundamental because all of the virtues are built on its very foundations. Man, that's why I think the love is the greatest. I'll quote Kierkegaard one last time. Okay, one last time, I promise, okay? He said this, love has its priests in the poets. Love has its priests in the poets. Such a cool statement. It's kind of poetic, kind of romantic. This is what it means. Oftentimes we learn about love in all the wrong places. We learn how to love in all the wrong places. For us single people, we watch The Bachelor and we're like, the only responsible, logical thing to do is to date 30 people at once. I mean, I'm just saying, right? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> But in all seriousness, man, we, we take notes and oftentimes it's subconsciously from the movies we watch and the shows we watch, from the things we see on social media, from the songs we listen to, from the conversations we overhear when we're just out and hanging around. And I'm not saying all of it is bad advice, but we have to recognize that a lot of it is. A lot of it is. I love what Rich Wilkerson Jr. says. He's the pastor of Voo Church in Miami. He says this, don't ask for advice from someone you wouldn't trade places with. Whew, that's good. Don't ask for advice from someone you wouldn't trade places with. I'll give you a few examples. Don't go to your girlfriends who don't even like their husbands for relationship advice. Don't go to your boss who's sleeping with his secretary for relationship advice. Don't go to a couple that has no fruit, no joy, no passion in their marriage for relationship advice. Ask people that you respect, that you want to emulate, that you want to be like, that you'd trade places with. My last Bonhoeffer quote of the day, okay? Basically a Bonhoeffer Kierkegaard sermon right now. He once said this, love is inseparably bound up with the name of Jesus Christ as the revelation of God. The New Testament answers the question, what is love, quite unambiguously by solely and, pointing, uh, solely and entirely pointing to Jesus Christ. He is the only definition of love. You see, the reality is it really doesn't matter where else you look to. If you're not looking to Jesus Christ, you're not going to live with extraordinary love. You want to learn how to be patient with annoying people? Then look to Jesus. Man, when I read scripture, he patiently taught his disciples for three years. And, and honestly, from, from the stuff that they said, that couldn't have been easy. You, you want to learn how to have compassion on needy people? Then look to Jesus. Because he saw crowds coming. And even though scripture tells us that he was exhausted and he was still mourning the loss of his cousin, John the Baptist, he was still in grief. He saw the crowds coming and he realized that they were helpless, that they were hurting, that they were broken. And so he rose above and he helped him. He had compassion. You want to learn how to forgive? Look to Jesus. Man, the whole reason he came was to bring forgiveness. The whole reason he came was to set us free. He forgave even those who crucified him, which I got to shoot you straight, includes you. And includes me. Man, you want to learn how to love in an extraordinary way? Then look to the one who is love. 1 John 4. You see, the goal here is to fill our lives with the love of Jesus Christ so much so that we just overflow his love onto the people around us. That's when life gets really fun. And that's when our love becomes extraordinary. I'll conclude with this. I, I, I don't know what your story is. I, I don't know what you're facing right now what difficulties may be in front of you. I don't know what's going on inside of your mind or inside of your heart. God does, but I don't. But I ask you a question. 
It's the same question that I asked myself, just to be transparent, during the hardest and most difficult hours of my life. I'll ask you this. In five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, what story will be told about the moment you are in right now? What story will be told about the moment you are in right now? Will it be a story of fear or of extraordinary faith? Will it be a story of doubt or extraordinary hope? Will it be one of selfishness or extraordinary love? Man, I pray that you and I would become everything that we were created to become, that we would become everything that we were called by God to become, that we would live an extraordinary life of faith, hope, and love, and that in so doing, we too would send a giant ripple through the universe. Would you pray with me this morning?